I thought about two sentences this week as studying and trying to decide where to go. Oh, by the way, I'm going to pause from Colossians 3 if you a normal attender. Because if you read Colossians 3, you know the very next verse is, And wives, be submissive to your husbands. And I figured that's probably not the best thing to do on Easter, Resurrection, Sunday, whatever you want to call it. Right? So I paused from that. And I prayed. And here's where I wanted the Lord to take me. Some of y'all looking right now. Is that re- that's really the next verse in Colossians. So y'all won't be here next Sunday either. But... <laughs> Where I wanted to go was this, because there's two sentences that are uttered by an angel that changed the course of history. Matthew chapter 28, verse 6. This angel shouted and declared, he said, he's not here, he's risen, just like he said he would do. Everybody here, you know the funny thing about a resurrection day? You know, most pastors like, they like it because they don't have to think about where they're going. I, I'm still that one that I, I'm going to go wherever the Lord leads, so I'm bathed in prayer so much and... I tried my hardest to get away from the chapter Angie just read because I didn't want to go there. But Lord wouldn't let me leave Romans 6. So, so here's, here's why and here, here's where I think the Lord wants to lead in that. Because everybody in here knows what the Resurrection Day message is really going to be about, right? For, for some of you, you know, this is, this is one of the only two times you'll come into church this year. And I don't want you to feel, yeah, ouch is right. But I do want you to know we're glad you're here. I understand sometimes why maybe you feel uncomfortable. I also thought about that, you know, in, in, in that joke I was thinking. I understand why sometimes you probably only come once a year. Because every time you come, the pastor preaches the same message. So you think that's the only message he preaches. So I just want to let you know as we welcome you, we're glad you're here. At the same time that we preach other messages. We do a lot of other stuff throughout the year. So you're invited to, to join And check some of that stuff out. But the core of what we celebrate as believers, the core of our victory, is just that the Bible does and did what it said it would do. Jesus did come. Jesus did live a life. He followed all the prophecies just like He said. He did actually die. He was actually resurrected. He was seen by hundreds of witnesses that testified about it at the cost of their lives. So the center of Christianity, the center of what we believe is not some new moral code, some new perspective on life. The center of our belief is an empty tomb that literally has to change everything about you. My fear sometimes is we're quick to run to the cross. We're quick to bow down at an altar, but we forget we're supposed to get up and walk out like new life. So if you don't allow this stuff to change you and impact you, then the story hasn't done anything for you. It's just a story. It's just some history. So I think that's why God takes us to to Romans 6 today because Paul looks at the resurrection and what he says from this is that the resurrection is the power that we go on living and being able to do the things we're called to do. It's why we're able to live out all the rest of his letters that he writes and some of the commands. So the resurrection does this. It gives me one of my my favorite definitions of faith. So if you take notes, this this is pretty good to think about. Faith happens when the unexplainable meets the undeniable. Faith happens when the unexplainable meets the undeniable. What I mean by that is this. The resurrection is undeniable. It's undeniable. It's got hundreds of witnesses. It's got men and women that went to their grave, that went to their death for the resurrection. It is undeniable. But at the same time, I'm man enough to admit it is unexplainable. It is something we don't understand nor can we. 
So if the resurrection is undeniable, then that changes your discomfort with the unexplainable. Are we not a group of people who are very uncomfortable sometimes with things we can't un- un- things we can't explain with the unexplainable? You ever have your kids ask you those those questions and you don't know how you're supposed to explain them? Me and Paxton now have porch time. We all know about that. So there's things like sex ed and other man talks that come up in there. And, and, and we get questions from the other two. And at that point, it's the unexplainable for them because we're not going there yet. But it's the undeniable. So here's what I want you to think about. And some of you guys, I understand this. Some of you guys, you pride yourself on your doubt. Oh, well, I'm not going to be foolish enough to believe that that simple and that easy. And, and you think it's an ego thing. So here's just a question. I want you to write down. This is for somebody else. If you know who it's for. He asked me to plug on my ear. Here's the question. This applies to so many areas of our life for real. Are you willing to doubt your doubts? Are you willing? Just let that sink in for a minute. Just think about that question. That's a crazy question when you think about it. Are you willing to doubt your doubts? You doubt if this book is worth living. You doubt if your life is worth sacrificing and giving up. You doubt if creation's real. You doubt if Jesus really came. You doubt if Jesus was really resurrected. You, you doubt all this stuff. And some of you even pride yourself on that doubt. So my question then is this. Are you willing to doubt your doubts? If you've got so much doubt, and some of it you're even so proud of, are you willing to let that seep over into doubting your doubt? Meaning that even after you do fully believe the resurrection and everything else, we talk about this changed life because we're not just going to the cross. We're coming out of the tomb Amen. with Christ. That's what resurrection is about, right? That's what, that's what he, she just read in, in, in Romans chapter 6 about. So not just going to the cross, but coming out of the tomb with Jesus as well. So if we're going to come out of the tomb with Jesus and we're going to live this thing, am I willing to doubt my doubts when it comes to my daily steps? To stepping out on faith. To maybe not getting the answer I wanted. To maybe it not happening the way I wanted it to happen. We're going to talk about Paul in just a minute. I'm not, I'm not dumb enough to tell you everybody in here is going to have a Damascus Road experience where you get to see Jesus, where you get to hear audibly Jesus. It ain't always going to happen that way. But are you willing to doubt your doubts when it doesn't happen that way? Are you willing to step forward and check it out? If it makes you feel any better, here, here's a, a verse Wanting to stay in Matthew so bad. I did, did a couple of verses for the intro of Matthew, right? If it makes you feel any better, the original disciples, they had unanswered questions too. And they were with Jesus all the time. So much so, check this out. If you got your Bibles, flip to Matthew 28 real quick. I didn't think about it. We always tell you you're more holy if you got your Bible for the chapter and the verses we're in. All you got to do is steal a bulletin at the back because mom puts them all in there. So it's, it's proof for you, right? But in Matthew 28... It's at the end of Matthew's gospel. Let me set the tone for you so you understand exactly what's going on here. Jesus has gathered everybody on this hillside. He's been with them for 40 days, so we're way past the, the actual opening of the tomb and the, and the resurrection itself. He's talked with them. He's eaten with them. He showed some of them the nail-scarred hands. He's let some of them, even though doubting Thomas, even touch some of these marks. He brings them out on the Mount of Olives. He gives them the great commission. You know, that's where Matthew 28 really goes, right? To carry out the gospel to the ends of the earth. He begins to ascend to heaven. And then Matthew 28, 17 just says one of the craziest things that I think are there. It says, when they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. 
Now, I only point it out because so many of you guys are telling me all the time, oh, if I could only see what Paul saw, if I could only experience what they experienced, I would go with it. I just want to point out, this guy was dead for three days. This guy got out of a tomb. He hung out with them for three months, 40 days, so maybe not quite three months, I understand, right? And now he's floating in the air before David Copperfield, before David Blaine, before any of those guys were able to do it. He's floating in the air. And it says that some of these guys, as they saw him floating, began to worship. I think that had been the one or two that amen during the video. And I think the rest of us, let's go ahead and get another ouch. I think the rest of us, because we didn't see the excitement of what should have been exciting. I think we'd have been the ones doubting. What? What is going on? What is, what's really taking place? See, we reach a point in our lives, much like the disciples were, where we may see and we may feel amazing things. And even though they saw amazing things in light of amazing things, it says that they still struggled with their belief. We may come in with some praise reports that are awesome sometimes. We may come in with excitement in our lives. We may have seen, heard, or, or even been amazed by some of the things in our walk with Christ. And maybe that's you. Maybe you've seen, maybe you've heard, maybe you've been amazed. And then life popped you between the nose, between the eyes, on the nose. Right? And now you're struggling. What I love is these disciples, they learned to trust him despite their struggle. And that's all Jesus asks. Not because their questions get answered, by the way, because they'll ask some tough questions and Jesus will purposely either not answer or answer in a way that there's no way they understood. Sometimes I wonder if that's what he does with us. You know, we keep asking the same question. He's like, I already gave you that answer six times. Well, I don't understand the answer. So maybe our prayer needs to change and Lord, help me to understand the answer. And he may or may not do that. My bottom line is this before we get into Romans 6. You're in good company if you've got questions, uh, objections, doubts, or anything else. And there's no better place than to go to God's word and try to find those answers to those things. There's no better place than to go to him like the apostles went to him. And my hope today is that maybe some of you consider some of those questions. Maybe you think about those doubts and those objections, but when you, you consider those doubts and objections now, you look at them in light of the resurrection. You look at them in the fact of an empty tomb. You look at them with the belief and the courage to doubt your doubts, to suspend judgment on some unexplainable thing in light of an undeniable truth. And when Paul gets to Romans here, he establishes that the resurrection has to be the foundation for everything in our walk. Everything. Just as we hadn't, hadn't did this, this series in a while, I do want to give you some background because in, in the first five chapters of this letter that Paul's writing to this church in Rome, he explains the resurrection's already done two things for him, which are vital for understanding what he's getting at in chapter six for us, right? And the first is this. He understood through the book, through the resurrection, that Jesus was who he said he was. Romans chapter one, verse four. Paul writes this church and he says, Jesus was declared to be the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. Now, Paul's not saying the resurrection didn't make him the son of God. Paul's saying the resurrection proves that he's the son of God. So he's saying the resurrection's had the power to do that. Second thing it says is in Romans chapter four, verse 25. Paul says, I've come to the terms to realize this, that Jesus' death accomplished what he said he would accomplish. It says that he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life. For or because of our justification. So what Paul is saying is the resurrection is proof that the cross worked. It's proof that God 
accepted that sacrifice. So if we're going off of what Paul's saying in this letter, he's saying the resurrection proves that Jesus was who he said he was and that he accomplished what he said he would accomplish. Later on, he's going to go into to some of the other things, right? About how it's passionately changed his, his opinion on a lot of things and, and all this. And you got to ask, what is it that made this guy change so quickly? Well, the answer is easy. He has a Jesus encounter. And about seven minutes on a road, he totally changes everything about it. And sometimes I feel like we lose the amazingness of this conversion. This first century conversion. Because we've got the number one enemy of Christianity that's now become the biggest proponent instantly about the resurrection. And he's sold out to it. In doing so, here's, what, here's another thing you need to understand. Because I, I read this quote. It said one, one religious historian, I didn't write his name down. But he points out this. When someone is teaching something they know to be false, and that happens... You will always find that what they are teaching gains them money, gains them power, and gains them respect. Let that apply to some churches today. Ouch, again. Did Paul gain any of those things? <laughs> no. Paul gets the exact opposite. But he keeps on testifying because he's convinced at what he saw was truth. Paul went from being what you could call one of the, the most prestige, power, promising of the Jewish community, a rising star... To poor, persecuted, numerous beatings, more time in prison than he did free, which a lot of our letters we're doing our series on now understand, and died by beheading. Everything changed for Paul in a worldly, fleshly standard in the wrong direction, but he was still willing to go through it. I even thought, you know, that, that, that thing said, said liberating in the translation that Angie read. The resurrection is liberating. It liberates God's people. And I thought about years past when we've even had a woman stand up and read scripture in front of everybody. It's liberated people. It hasn't, hasn't held them back. And I point that out because another thing that, that blows my mind when I think about the resurrection and people who, who would assume it to be false. Why in the world would you have woman witnesses if it was false? They already, even if they were telling the truth, weren't accepted by the court system in this day. I'll tell you why they had woman witnesses because that's the way it happened. It's not a made-up story. It's exactly what took place. And in addition to, to this, we have the testimony of all the other apostles who were willing to go and be tortured and die for the fact of this message. Chuck Colson, uh, a special counsel to President Nixon, Nixon's inner circle, he becomes a believer after the, the whole Watergate thing. And he talks about these ten men. Now, I'm not as old, I mean, as wise as some of you in the room, so I had to go back and actually check out Watergate and stuff. And I'm looking at these 10 guys. Because I'm like, all right, in my mind, I'm thinking 10 business guys, 10 politicians, like that, that's who they were. These guys were Marines. These guys were special ops. These guys were, these guys were bad to the bone. And I point that out for this right here. 10 guys had a meeting before being arrested. They met secretly. They came up with the story where everybody's on the same page, right? They swore to maintain it. The toughest, most powerful men in the world. And you know, it only took three weeks, two weeks, five days, took less than three weeks to crush 10 of what we would call as the most powerful, toughest men on the planet to bring forth the truth. Chuck Colson one of the guys close to this, obviously, after being changed by the resurrection, he says, you're telling me 
A dozen uneducated, untrained fishermen could maintain a lie under duress and torture for 40 years without a single one of them ever caving in. He said, that, my friend, is absolutely impossible after what I witnessed with something that took place in less than three weeks. Either that or them disciples was just bad to the bone. Paul says the resurrection proved to me. <laughs> I think that's going to be like a hallelujah or something. Like you can't steal the Marines who are all right. The resurrection proved to me. That's what Paul says. The resurrection is proven that Jesus is who he said he is. And he's accomplished what he said he accomplished. So let's jump in to chapter 6 and see. If Jesus is who he said he is. And he accomplished what he said he accomplished. What does that mean for me as a believer? Because it's more than just a story we should be gathering to celebrate once a year, right? And then the question then is this. Are you willing to let the resurrection make you doubt your doubts? Are you willing to let the power of the resurrection doubt your doubts after you're a believer living it out, right? So chapter 6, Paul goes into this thing. And here's what he's saying. And hear this. The resurrection means the gospel is power. Paul, Paul's flat out saying as he gets to this part, writing to the Romans, he said, look, I'm not giving you a new theory of religion. I'm not giving you a new improved set of morals or anything like that. I'm bringing forth power, the gospel, actual life-giving, heart-generating power. And the proof, Paul says, is that it changes lives. Because he goes forth in this thing and he says, it's not just that the resurrection changed my mind about Jesus. It's that the resurrection changed me. I'm not asking you to let just the resurrection change your mind about Jesus. Demons have had their minds changed about Jesus. I'm asking you to let the resurrection change you. Change the way you live. Change what you do. Right? And Paul starts, and you can picture this crowd, justified probably so with this very first question that seems so weird to us. But he starts in verse 1, he says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin so that grace may abound? Paul's been going for five chapters on grace and a free gift, trying to get away from law and earning. And these knuckleheads... They take it and they say, does that mean we're just supposed to supposed to sin a bunch more so that, so that God's grace can be abounded even more, right? You realize every other religion says the theory or the order of I obey, therefore God accepts me. Our belief system, guys, our relationship with Christ is the only one that says God accepts me, therefore I believe and therefore I act. It's the only one that reverses it, Right? It's the only one that, that it, it just flips it. God has accepted me, therefore I will obey. I will receive it like a free gift. I'm not looking at, at His grace like a divine credit card that I can go about scanning anytime I want to to get out of jail and get out of trouble. Paul says the, the even sicker twist here, and this would have been a belief that was going around, is that some people say, well, if God gets glory by showing grace, then, then by sinning, aren't we allowing Him to be glorified even more? Can you imagine that, that mentality and that attitude? I thought it sounded crazy until I realized there's people who actually preach that. I'm serious. There are groups to this day still preaching that, yeah, if you just sin more, it makes God look bigger and better. Wow. Yeah, that, yeah, wow. Idiots. <laughs> Paul's answer, we're going to be honest about it. Paul's answer is, number verse 2, by no means. Now, because it's resurrection day and I don't want y'all to think totally less of me who don't know me yet. <laughs> this is no lie, though. In the Greek, this is the strongest way of saying no. So it almost reminds me of I have a, a friend sometime when he is at his limit. He will say it this way. Do you want me to give you the one word answer for no or the two word answer for no? 
This is Paul's heck no. <laughs> Fill in the gaps now you understand where it was, right? This is the strongest way of saying no. He's saying, heck no, how? How can we who died to sin still be alive in it? Right? What does Paul mean when he says, how can those of us that have died to sin have a way in it? It doesn't mean that we lost interest in sin. It doesn't mean that we slowly move away from it. Because what he said is died. Past tense died. It's something that's already done. Later on in chapter 7, by the way, he's going to go further into explaining that the Christian still indeed can be tempted or even seduced by the power of sin. So he's not saying that part's gone either. But he goes on and he begins to explain what he means here. Verse 3 says, do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that Christ, just as Christ, was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. We too may walk in the newness of life. He's using this, this baptism, this picture, right, of what takes place with us. It's so why before I ever baptize anybody, I look him and ask him, like, straight up, are you willing to live for him the rest of your life? Especially with younger people. You know, some of you old folks, y'all ain't got a lot of time left, so y'all ain't got long to do it. You know what I'm saying? Like, you got it a little easy. Well, man, yeah, I, that hurt. I don't know what that is. Maybe that's Al Chawu and a, we got your fired card at the back porch when you leave. Yeah, but, but yeah, right? But, but my point is this, like a young person, if they're going to, and I'd say train them up. I'm not saying don't. But if they're willing to make that step that early in life, they got to understand, man, you got a long time to stay dedicated to Christ the way you're supposed to. You got a lot of work to put in. This is called repentance. A change of mind and about face. It's basically this. I see things the way God sees things now. That's the easy way to kind of. I'm seeing things through the eyes of him. Y'all heard me before. Get on and man, God forbid if one of you visitors got this bumper sticker. But you've heard me before on like the stupid bumper sticker that says God is my co-pilot. Go in the parking lot, peel it off before anybody sees it after church. It's all right. Nobody will know, right? <laughs> if God is your co-pilot, you better change seats. You know what I'm saying? And when you become a follower of Christ, that's what you're saying. God, I, I changed my view. I changed the way I'm looking at things. And I'm changing seats with you. you. You are now the pilot of everything. You are now in control of everything. I'm now seeing things your way. I'm now going where it is you want me to go and no longer the ways I wanted to go. And I'm going to be honest, if this didn't happen to your conversion, your conversion is not legitimate. Maybe you just needed to hear that this morning since you ain't heard it in a while, right? We fall into the trap of thinking that praying a prayer saves you. You know every religion in the world asks God to let them into heaven? So if that's all it took, man. Right? It's more than that. Just believing God doesn't save you. James says that the demons believe and they tremble. Going to church doesn't save you. Getting involved doesn't make you a Christian. Conversion begins at repentance and surrender. So then ask yourself this. Did I surrender and does my life show that? And I ain't talking about in a moment. I'm talking about in my life. We get so quick on the moments. Oh, I had that moment with God. God doesn't just want you for a moment. God wants you for a lifetime. Right? And if your conversion, if your little prayer, if your little repeat after me, if your little experience was nothing more than a moment, I'm grateful today to pop your bubble and let you know you need something different. Not in a mean way, in a serious way. Because if that's all it was, you're still doomed. God wants a relationship for a lifetime. And I'm not talking about Christians being perfect. I'm talking about Christians who clearly renounce sin. And they prove it in the way they treat sin. 
Not playing with it, but renouncing it. Paul said, here's the same thing he says, you are dead to sin. That means that through the resurrection, Christ has destroyed the reign of sin over your life. Other letters like Ephesians, Paul writes and he says, we were slaves to sin. You didn't have a choice then. What he's saying is when you become a believer, the shackles are removed. You're no longer a slave to it. Well, pastor, I, I still really struggle sometimes. I didn't say you weren't going to struggle. You know what makes a free man a free man? The ability to choose. Right? How could you be a free man if he made you no longer able to choose sin? He says, I come to set the captive free and you shall be free indeed. Which means that it's a choice you have to make. You are 100% free. Free to go back to whatever you want to go back to if you're willing to go back to it. Right? But he says you're no longer a slave to it. You no longer have to do it. It's a choice. Again, this picture of baptism. You go under the water showing that you're buried with Jesus. And then you come out showing that that new life, his new life is ours. Access to Christ's resurrection power. Look at verse 5. For if we've been united with him in a death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this. Are you united with him in his death? And after you can answer that, then are you united with him in the life? You know, a question we always use sometime right here, people try to use, if you were to die tonight, you know what I'm saying? If you were to die tonight, and God was asking you, why, why should I let you in there? And that's a, that's a good question to think on. I, I, don't, I don't want to take completely away from the question. But maybe an equally important question is this. If you were to get up tomorrow morning, is your life going to be in di- any different because Jesus came into your life? Why are we so quick to want to jump on? Y'all were all on it just now. I see you. And then, then I changed the question. Everybody's like, oh, hold on. You were talking about we actually got to do something now. I got to backpedal again. Why? Are you that afraid to live for him? My brother just prayed a minute ago about him willing to die for you. And then he transitioned into like, we get that macho thing. Oh, I'm willing to die for my kids. I'm willing to die. You, know, I, you can't die for something you're not willing to live for. Right? You can't live for something you're not willing to make sacrifices for. You're not living for something you're not willing to say no to other stuff about. Equally important question. If you were to get up tomorrow morning. Is your life going to be any different because Jesus came into your life? The rest of this afternoon, the rest of this week coming, your life going to be any different because you came to a resurrection Sunday service. Or is it just a check mark because it was that time of the year because you wanted grandma's food or because there was some cute girl that invited you, cute guy, whatever. Or it's because Mr. Harold's birthday was Wednesday. Oh, what is it? You realize the gospel isn't just about forgiveness, guys. The gospel isn't just about the death of Jesus. The gospel is about renewed life that comes through the resurrection. We preach too much on the whole. And I'm not, I'm not saying like the death isn't important, guys. The death is what pays for you, right? But, but we stop there too often. We got to get past that into this new life. We went to the cross with Christ, but have we came out of the tomb with him? We're called to die, but we're also called to live. Man, that word keeps ringing in my head. I love, I love it. That liberating life. You're called to really live. You know the solution? The solution to habitual sin is the resurrection. I'm stuck in this one and I do this. No, the solution is resurrection power. Man, go back to verse 5. I didn't mean to get off that right. But verse 5, that word united, that's that's a horticulture term. That's, That's a plant term, right? The Greek word was translated into planted together, grown together, united with. It's something that Jesus we talking about where he takes the, the branches off of a tree that's dying and he, and he attaches them to a tree of life. 
I think it's where he gets the idea from John chapter 15, verses 4 and 5. You remember when he's, when he's talking to his disciples, it's on the screen. And, and, and he looks at them, and he's talking to them, and he uses this word abide, and he says, that's Romans, just kidding. <laughs> you ought to have your Bibles anyway, right? The good news is it's only one chapter back. So if you got your Bibles, turn back one book, right? I guess it's two books, actually. I apologize. Somebody's going to tell me at the back door, Pastor, you know it's Acts in the middle. Yeah, I know. All right. Look at verse 14 to 15 real quick. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you servants anymore because that's not right either. I'm glad you didn't put it up there because it's the wrong one. You, there's a verse in John. I think it might be John chapter five. Then there's a verse in John where he says you abide in me and you can produce a lot of fruit. But apart from me, you can produce nothing. What he's saying? What is it? Five and say, I just had to keep reading. I was right there at it. Right. If you read it, though, and you see the power that comes from what he's telling him is, guys, Apart from the resurrection power, you're living this life on your own and it doesn't produce a crop. But if you abide in me and we tie in together and my blood flows through your blood and we're united as one. The things that you can produce, the things that you can have, this is that life. This is that life. This is that this is that irrefutable, amazing life, not a dead life, not some mundane life, but an exciting life. One that brings forth joy at every moment, right? And if we just use just a little bit of logic, right? A little bit of what Paul's saying here, where he says, like, if you've died to this stuff, if you renounce this stuff, how in the world can you willingly practice it? <laughs> here, this way. This one is an ouch. I will forewarn you to get out. <laughs> if you do willfully continue to practice sins, that means you're either insincere in your repentance, or it means that God's resurrection power never came over you. You're either insincere in your repentance or you don't have resurrection power, both of which means you're lost. Right? Now, if you sin and you feel the ouch, that's a good sign. Uh, you might not like it at the moment. You might not like the way it makes you feel, but it's a good sign because it means that spirit's there slapping you in the back of the head. Paul's saying, guys, we can't willful, willingly, willfully continue to practice sin if we're believers. If we have resurrection power inside of us. You can't. I guess this is what Paul's asking. How can you encounter something as powerful as the resurrection and still have no effects on your life? You can't. Your confession of faith has got to be more than words. It's got to be more than a little prayer. It's got to be more than walking down an aisle, joining a church, a ritual. Your confession of faith, your surrendering to Christ, has got to bring forth power that changes your life. So ask yourself this way. Have you been resurrected? Have you gotten up from whatever it was that killed you? Have you walked out of the tomb? Have you experienced new life? Have you experienced its power? And does your life actually show it for others to see? Hundreds, hundreds of people saw Christ resurrected. Will you just let a few people see you resurrected? Right? Power to make, not, not, not a fact of history, but power to make new in the present. An infusion of power. Buried with Him. Back to verse 4. Buried with Him as Christ was raised from the dead so that I could walk in this new life. This illustration of coming back out of the water. And, and please understand, as Paul uses this illustration of baptism, and we get so big on this right here, baptism is an important illustration. It is. But all you're doing is putting on a drama show. I'm serious. That is all it is intended to be. There's no power from it other than that. It's a drama show. It's your public profession of faith. If you're an actor, you would, I could literally ask you, have you ever acted out a show? 
This is what we're going to do. We're going to act out the dead, you being buried dead, and you coming back up new alive. Because if it's if it's if 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 you're banking on coming out of the water to save you, you're just as lost. Now you're just wet and lost. <laughs> right? If someone has not spiritually died and risen with Jesus, all the baptisms in the world aren't going to accomplish it for them. The gospel is not about turning over a new leaf. It's about receiving new life. And, and, and really, see guys, I am tired of seeing Christians who think the Christian life is nothing but a creed and trying to be a decent person and, and they forget about the gospel power. Raw, life-changing, heart-starting power. I think that's what did it for Paul. He said, guys, you don't understand. You don't understand what this thing's done to me. How it's changed me. The impact it's had on me. Not, not some, some moral code or perspective on life, but an empty tomb that literally changed everything. Certainly, verse 5 said, certainly, no doubt about it, certainly, we also shall be in the likeness of His resurrection. Our participation in the death makes our participation in the resurrection a fact. I love that. I love that. He guaranteed if you, if you participate in the death, you can participate in the resurrection. It's too easy for us to, to focus on the crucified life and miss out on, on the preparation of a resurrected life. Look, look back at verse 6. Back to Romans 5 verse 6. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He died while I was against Him. He died to change me from something I used to be. That law, the law will try to reform an old man, right? He'll try to that turn over a new leaf kind of thing, right? But, but Jesus is saying, and Paul is saying, that old man got to be put to death. That old man got to go to the cross. And a new life, a new creation has got to come out of the tomb. And if that's not what it is, all you're doing is putting chapstick on a... Mm, right? Death. He says death has been defeated. Here's what, here's what that means for us. But let's get into some, some real life present day stuff, right? If death's been defeated, that means guilt's been defeated. It means guilt's been defeated. It means injustice has been defeated. It means addictions have been defeated. It means sorrow has been defeated. It means despair has been defeated. If Jesus was raised from the dead, that means guilt don't have the last word no more. Right? That ought to make a lot of you feel good, man. You ever felt guilty for something? Huh? It sucks. It's a miserable feeling to be trapped in. And what he's saying here is guilt don't have that last word. If you made a ton of mistakes, if you thought that's where you were stuck in, Jesus took the full penalty on it for you. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 17. He writes this, this new church in Corinth. And he tells them, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and see the new that has come. Guilt don't have the last word. Injustice don't have the last word. We live in a world full of unfair things, man. Right? Ain't no doubt. But the resurrection shows us that God is going to right all wrongs and restore a thousand times more than you lost. And that ought to bring forth some great joy and great glory. If Jesus rose from the dead and justice, and justice doesn't have the last word, God has the last word. Addictions don't have the last word. Maybe you still feel captive to your sins this morning. In the resurrection, God released a power on earth that destroys the power of death, which means it destroys the power of addiction. I'm not saying that would be quick and easy. I'm not saying there won't be a struggle. I'm saying they ain't got the last word. I'm saying that in the resurrection is the promise of healing and motivation to get up tomorrow and to keep pressing forward. 
I, I, I challenge you right now. You've got a sin you're stuck in. We talk about habitual sin. You've got a sin you're stuck in, something you feel like, you said, man, I am a believer. I know it, but I'm still stuck in this right here. You can't take the chain off yourself. You know the easiest way to do it? God, take that desire from me. God, I pray that you make whatever that thing that looks so good to me look like poop on a stick. Right? You won't desire it if it looks like poop on a stick. You think, man, that sounds kind of, that, that's exactly how you should view it, though. Rubbish. That's a spiritual word, by the way. You want me to say it spiritually? God, make that good looking thing look like rubbish on a stick. There. Now you don't have to hear the word poop in your sermon. Huh? Yeah, now you haven't heard it, right? Sorrow doesn't have the last word. Guys, I've done multiple funerals in the last couple of weeks. I've seen a lot of hurt people. A lot of hurt people, right? But sorrow doesn't have to have the last, the last word. Maybe you one of these experiences. Maybe it's not even death of a loved one. Maybe you're dealing with somebody with Alzheimer's or somebody with a mental disease, or, or maybe you're dealing with 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 a, with a broken relationship, or or maybe it's pain of something else. Resurrection says that kind of pain doesn't have to have the last word, right? Jesus has the last word. He restores what is broken. The New Testament. Paul writes two other letters and he tells them about this new man. Ephesians four twenty four. The new man which was created according to God in righteousness and true holiness. See how he wants you to view yourself differently when you're in Christ? Right? Colossians chapter 3 verse 10. Where we just were last week. The new man is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. That means when I look in the mirror, I see me the way God sees me. And that will make you live different. That means when I see me in the mirror the way God sees me, that means when I look back out into the world, i got to see other people the way God views other people. That will make you treat other people different. It will impact every area of your life. What Paul is getting at, he goes, man, now when evil comes into your life, it's a stranger. It's a trespasser. It's wreaking havoc and, and it has no right to be there. It's an alien and you despise it. So stop letting it come in. Stop, stop letting what's dead have any power over your life. Verse 9. Having been raised from the dead, death no longer has dominion over him. Says that he died to sin. This new man, verse ten, the life that he lives, he lives to God. What's the life you're living for? Says that the life he lived, he lives for God. We, we're, we're dead to sin. We're free from sin. Now we're living a life that should be pleasing the Father. Pleasing the Father. You, you guys ever played any kind of sports? Or it works for music too, right? Like you, you ever you ever been you ever been on the stage doing something? And you knew when you made a mistake. If you were like me, it's the way I'm wired, right? Like I would look to wherever mom and dad was sitting, right? Wherever a buddy was, wherever a friend was, wherever, right? And, and, and I would know by the head shake. I screwed that one up, right? But at the same time, when something great happened, this is no lie. I don't even know if my dad knows this, right? My greatest touchdown, I only saw on video. Seriously. I went back to the sideline. And a buddy of mine was like, man, I don't know how you did that. That was awesome. Like you was hit and you was rolling and you was spinning. And I looked at him and said, I have no idea what you're talking about. I literally do not remember anything other than getting on this sideline right here to stand by you. And he looks at me and says, well, Sunday when we watch film, you're going to love it. And it was awesome. It was great. So after my buddy told me that, I looked up in the stands and my dad was. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I don't remember it, but it was good. I think they consider that an unhealthy thing. But what if healthily, healthfully, 
Y'all go with me. I create new words every week. Hang around long enough. You'll, I'll expand your dictionary, I promise. Right? What if healthfully, healthfully you've been possessed by the Spirit so much that you did stuff naturally that you didn't even know you was doing that somebody tells you that was awesome so you can then look to Abba Father and it became second nature to you because His Spirit was leading you to do it and you can just nod and yep, yep. Have you experienced those moments? You know, the, the resurrection, we talk about the resurrection changing everything. I want to wrap up with this right here because this is the goal, right? The goal is for it to change people. Let's just look at some examples, right? If the resurrection changes everything, let's look at some people that it changed just in Scripture. Paul, we already talked about him. Harsh, abrasive, a bigot, a murderer. Has an encounter with Jesus. Considers himself the chief of sinners. A bondservant of the church. Totally changes his attitude. Becomes the most humble person ever. Willing to die for the gospel now. Rather than murder for it. Peter. So much of a coward. He encounters this little middle schooler who says, Don't you know Jesus? No, I don't know Jesus. I'm out of here. Right? So much of a coward, a middle school girl scares him away. Right? I know middle school girls are scary. But I didn't think they were that scary. <laughs> he has an encounter with the resurrected Jesus. And it transforms him into what Scripture then describes as a man of courage. The rock on which Jesus would build his church. Who would one day die crucified upside down for his testimony. That ain't in Scripture. But you know why he dies upside down? Because he considered himself unworthy to die the same way Jesus died. Now that's a viewpoint. Right? That's a changed man. The Apostle John. Arrogant, vengeful. He encounters Jesus. Being led to make... An apostle, probably most known for his beautiful and tender expressions of God's love. A changed man. Gladly submitted to torture and exile so that others could come to know that love. You know, I think about it sometimes when I watch some, some of the, the, the other movies and in, in the you know, worldly movies. And I watch it and I think like, you know, I don't think it was just them that got tortured and crucified. I think some of their loved ones might have got captured. I think some of their family members might have been. You know, it's one thing for, you to, for me to be able to take a lot of pain. Yeah, do it, whatever, try it out, let's check it out. That's another thing when I'm willing to watch my family member be tortured, my loved one be tortured, and still not change my story because it's the truth. That's what these guys, several of the, of the, the women of the early church, they got some, some dirty pasts. Right? Scripture describes it. I, I like the way Mitchell's getting ready to go Wednesday night with it. They, they describe it as like being demon possessed by multiple things. One of those demon possessions was prostitution, right? One of them was hatred. One of, one of them was, was witchcraft, right? They get an encounter with Jesus, though, and they become mighty women of courage and strength. Women that would start Bible studies, and I guarantee they started churches. Women that, that would profess no matter what, what they saw at the tomb that morning, despite what anybody else thought. Probably the first evangelist. And now 2,000 years from all that, Paul is writing to us, just like he wrote to the Romans. And he is saying in verse 4, Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Have you been raised into the newness of life? If you had not been to the cross, you've got to go there first. But I don't want people to stay at the cross. I want them to get in the tomb and I want them to come out of the tomb. Have you experienced this kind of power? Not did you say a prayer. Not are you happy to be back in church. Not are you going to sign on the dotted line. Right? But have you been born again? Stop trying to do 
and just accept what's already been done. Maybe that's a good way of putting it, right? Look at this last verse. Verse 23 of still chapter 6. I don't know if it's up there or not. If not, I'm going to flip real quick. I wasn't going to go all the way to 23. 23 says this, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The gift of God, what's the gift of God? Life. Life. I got to ask you guys, are you living life? Are you still tortured by and tormented by things that don't have the last say? But what looks acceptable to the crowd because you live in the South by, by, by a shameless because of, of what you've gone through. No. The Bible doesn't talk about any of that. It talks about the power to get past all that. It talks about the guarantee to have powerful life. Y'all pray with me. Father God, we love you. We thank you for this morning, Lord. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this letter, Lord God, that you instilled in Paul to write this early church. And God, I thank you. Now more than ever, Lord God, that 2,000 plus years later, that letter wasn't just written for them, it's written for us today. It's going to power our lives, Lord God. It's to get us out of ruts, Lord God. God, it's to get us past death and into newness of life. Father God, if there's some in this room, Lord God, that don't know you, Lord, I pray. I pray that you communicate through your spirit, Lord God. Do it all the voice, do a vision, Lord God. Do a dream, whatever means necessary. Your desire, your love, your passion for them. God, I pray that they have the courage to doubt their doubts and to give you a chance. God, I pray that we as believers, we come out of the tomb this morning that we've been in. Come out of what's been trying to hold us captive. Thoughts, memories, and anything else. Sin, addictions, desires. God, I pray that you make them like rubbish to us. Because God, I pray that we leave here this morning, Lord God, we truly are a new creation in you. Experiencing, Lord God. God, help us to experience the fullness of life. In your great name we pray. Amen.